Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about the intersection of the life of faith and the life of the mind in connection with cancer with Dr. Matthew Crosman. Dr. Crosman is a lecturer of divinity and humanities at Yale University, and Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology at the Yale School of Medicine. So, Matt, maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit more about yourself and what it is you do. Sure. Um, I, I trained as a, uh, a Bible scholar, um, actually at, at Yale, in Yale's Religious Studies program. Um, I spent much of my time um, you know, in graduate school and soon afterwards um, teaching Bible courses, teaching New Testament introduction courses. A lot of that was really... They were, it was historically oriented. It was sort of like a um, uh, classes on like the ancient Greco-Roman world that were had a particular fascination with what was going on in the sort of religious landscape. Um, and I always, I found it a bit dissatisfying. I think my students found it a bit dissatisfying. It sort of maybe set the set the uh, the plate for what I've found myself doing these days. And so then what happened? What is it that you do these days? Yeah. So, you know, I was, I eventually was revising that intro to New Testament course um, in Yale College. Um, and I eventually found a way that we could sort of cram in all the history that quite reasonably, quite rightly, we wanted to have students do um, into like about half the time that we normally spent doing that. Such that at the end of the course, students could finally pursue what it seemed like they were most interested in to begin with, which was sort of life's big questions. They wanted to know, um, hey, this text talks about wealth and poverty. It talks about power and empire. It talks about um, gender and family. Um, how, you know, uh, how, how could I interact with this text? Um, how could I answer some of my own questions that are along these, along these lines? And I figured out, you know, sort of how to, how to fit those around the edges of this course. And about the time that I was, I was finally getting that course, um, I was pretty happy with it. I heard about some colleagues at the Divinity School who had designed this other course in, in Yale College called Life Worth Living. And it seemed like what I had worked so hard to work around the edges of my Bible class, they had just put right at the middle um, of the course. And, and then as a, as a result, what they were able to do was get not just one religious um, sort of community's perspective, but a number of religious and non-religious sort of perspectives on life's big questions and make clear to students right from the beginning, hey, what we're going to do is we're going to try to marry the best of our intellectual energies with the most profound of our um, sort of existential questions. And that combination was just was instantly so potent. And so the moment I, I, I sort of saw that, I thought, this is the thing I want to do. And so I've, I've been directing that program now um, for, for the last uh, eight or so years. Um, and it just gives me great joy to, um, to invite students uh, into these questions, to invite them to wrestle with them as their own questions, the questions that, um, that they personally are, are trying to, to answer, but also as ones that, you know, religious thinkers and philosophers and other sort of cultural leaders, artists over the centuries have, have thought about um, and have, have resources that we can draw on in really profound ways. 
You know, that sounds a lot uh, like uh, the Science of Happiness course that um, now is available on Coursera. And I I just wonder, as you were mentioning and going through that course on life worth living, that so many people would love to take that. I, 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 I just was thinking, geez, I, I wish I could take that course. Are you thinking about making that publicly available? Well, what we have done, I mean, there that's possible. Um, we can, uh, think about that. But what we have done just now is is publish this book, um, Life Worth Living, A Guide to What Matters Most, in which we are inviting readers into um, many of the same conversations that we have had over the years with our students. We sort of imagine, we invite the reader to imagine themselves sort of sitting down at this seminar table that sort of breaks the bounds of space and time and sort of at the table with you is is the Buddha and uh, Jesus of Nazareth and Mary Wollstonecraft and James Baldwin right and we're um, and so that's uh, that that book sort of walks through sort of question by question some of the most important questions of our lives offering um, various sorts of perspectives from very different points of views or, across history and around the world. Um, and lands each chapter with a, uh, a section we just call uh, "Your Turn," um, and and now it's a uh, it's 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 up to the reader to sort of um, understanding maybe some of the stakes of the question and some of the different routes that one might go. Um, all right, now uh, now how do I want to uh, answer this question and uh, live it out in my life? You know, as we think about cancer patients and and the journey that they go through, I can only imagine that they have these big questions. Um, and so maybe we can walk through some of these these questions and and how you might suggest that um, people can can think about them. So one of the most common questions that I get asked as a as a breast surgery surgical oncologist is why is this happening to me? Um, especially in breast cancer where there is no good reason. You know, there may be people who say, look, I, I don't smoke. I don't drink. I, I eat as healthily as I can. I exercise. I don't have a family history. Uh, you know, I go to church on Sundays. Why is this happening to me? How do you how do you come at that kind of um, based on the work that you've been doing? This is a this is a really uh, a really important and really difficult question, um, and you know many different thinkers have thought differently about this. Your 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 posing the question reminds me of an interaction that that Jesus is recorded to have had in the Gospels. Jesus is asked, um, it's a sort of healing scenario, um, but before any healing happens, the question is simply posed, whose fault is this illness? Is it, is it the patient's fault? Is it their parents? Um, and Jesus pretty clearly says, uh, neither. Um, that's, that's not the right way to think about um, sort of the purpose um, or the, like, why um, illness comes. Uh, from Jesus' point of view, his thought is that, um, God is interested in wholeness and in healing, um, and uh, in fact, that's what He says. The, this illness is so that um, God might be revealed in healing. Now we understand that healing does not always come, and um, this maybe just sort of leads us deeper into this question. Uh, the the rabbis um, 
in Pirkei Avot um, suggests that, I mean, this is, you know, this is an old, old question. It goes back to the Hebrew scriptures, the Hebrew prophets. Um, and the rabbis early on in this era, second, third century, propose simply, you know what? It is not for us to know um, either the prospering of the wicked or the suffering of the righteous. Um, and this comes after a bunch of different sort of reports of, well, you know, this rabbi had this sort of answer about how to propose, how to relate to suffering. This rabbi had this other thought. Um, but uh, sort of the last word is given simply to this place of saying, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's perhaps it's not for us to know. And, um, and I think especially when we sit with one another, um, there's a sort of a mystery that we need to abide, um, that we need to allow, um, uh, space for. And, um, and I've, I've always appreciated the ways that the rabbis leave that space. Yeah, true enough. I mean, I think, you know, there are some who say, you know, is this is this God's punishment for something I did either in this life or in a previous life? The the concept of, you know, um if if we believe in a merciful God, um why why would this be imposed on me? Um and so so the the concept of, well, maybe maybe this isn't for you to know um kind of does does give you that space but it still kind of leaves you with this as you said this sense of mystery this um almost lack of real closure as to okay maybe there there is is there a reason for this yeah you know a, f- a friend of mine um we went to div- we went to divinity school together kate bowler um has has, has written a book, um, everything happens for a reason and other lies I have loved. Um, and in which she's trying, you know, reflects, reflect, reflects on, on, on this and related questions. And, you know, I, I, I would never want to deny anyone who, who feels that they have an answer to this question that's working for them. I would never want to deny them. Um, I wouldn't want to call that, you know, if, if everything happens for a reason and sort of looking for the purposes that might come out of suffering, I, there's a lot in the religious traditions that encourage us to look towards, hey, what could come out of this suffering? Um, I'm personally inclined to separate that from the idea that if there's a purpose going forward, then there's a divine intention <laughs> behind it. Maybe we could separate those two ideas. Um, so even if I don't accept a sort of divine intention or a divine cause for this suffering, um, maybe we could nevertheless still look for a divine or a spiritual or a sort of hopeful purpose on the other end. Um, but yeah, I think, again, for me, uh, this becomes quickly a sort of interpersonal question and it's like, how do we care for one another? And again, I want to, I want to be really gentle in these spaces. Um, it's easy for me as a theologian to sort of walk and be like, ah, I have the answers. Um, I have, I have sat with people in pain in which the very last thing they needed from me was any sort of answer. Um, Often what um, we really most want and need from one another is our our simpler practices of presence, sitting with one another, being present to one another, even in in what philosophers call aporia, that, that moment in which there are no answers. Um, 
I think this can be very valuable. Um, and as I said, if someone has an answer and it's working well for them, uh, far far be it from me uh, to propose that uh, uh, that there's that they're that they're mistaken there. You know the the other question or comment that comes up at these junctures for some cancer patients and different cancer patients kind of approach this differently. Some will say, this is God's will. I have been diagnosed with this cancer. If God is going to heal me, he will heal me. I am not going to do any other treatment. Others will approach it from a different standpoint and say, I have gotten this cancer diagnosis. I don't know why, uh, but all things are God's will. But God has led me to you. You can act as God's instrument to help to heal uh, my affliction. How do you square those two different approaches, both of which um, individuals invoke uh the concept of God somehow being involved in in all things and in this cancer diagnosis, and yet come up with their approach to whether or not they will accept therapy from entirely different perspectives. Well, you know, Thomas Aquinas uh, defined theology as um, the study of God and all things in relation to God. And I take it the reason he adds that second part is because of the nature of what and who God is. Um, God as creator um, is inseparable from the things that God has created. And so I, I, share with your, I share with you the instinct that any sort of holism that would think that um, if, God is at, God is, if God is at work in the midst of this, uh, because God is at work in the midst of God's creation, then God would also be in, at, at work in the midst of uh, doctors like yourself, others who care for us um, in moments of medical crisis, um, and we can hope for God's work um, in and through uh, these therapies. You know, this is uh, such a, a fabulous conversation. We will pick it up on the other side of the break. We do need to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about finding meaning and purpose with cancer with my guest, Dr. Matthew Krasman. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from Smilo Cancer Hospital, where their melanoma program brings together an extensive multidisciplinary team to diagnose, treat, and care for patients with melanoma and other skin cancers. SmiloCancerHospital.org. The American Cancer Society estimates that over 200,000 cases of melanoma will be diagnosed in the United States this year, with over 1,000 patients in Connecticut alone. While melanoma accounts for only about 1% of skin cancer cases, it causes the most skin cancer deaths, but when detected early, it is easily treated and highly curable. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital, to test innovative new treatments for melanoma, the goal of the Specialized Programs of Research Excellence in Skin Cancer grant is to better understand the biology of skin cancer with a focus on discovering targets that will lead to improved diagnosis and treatment. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. 
Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Matthew Crosman. We're discussing ways to find meaning and purpose in life uh, when dealing with cancer. So, Matt, you know, right before the break, we were talking a little bit about how people kind of approach a cancer diagnosis. Um, first, by asking, why is this happening to me? And second, you know, how will they really think about therapy? The the other concept that this brings about, other theological kind of existential questions um, that come up are really, I think one of them is situated around this concept of blame. Can you kind of give us a perspective on how to think about that? It is often important to us, or it's an, it can be an instinct for us to try to render ethically, morally significant things that may not have moral significance. Um, the shape of my, of my genome is not a moral question to me. I didn't have a choice in what it is. Um, I don't have a choice in how it gets uh, passed along. And that separation of, from choice uh, puts it outside the category of being sort of um, a morally or ethically significant choice. So in terms of blame, at least to my mind, it seems relatively straightforward to say, I'm not to blame for this. Um, and yet at the same time, it's quite natural that we would feel sorrow that we, there would be, um, of course, the, that in fact, in, in certain ways, it might be monstrous for us, for us not to feel some sort of sorrow to think, oh, this difficulty that I'm experiencing my, in my life, um, people in my family, young people, my children in particular, who I care, care for, oh, they're going to experience this or they may experience this difficulty as well. It's natural for us and quite right for us, it seems, right, to sort of have to mourn that there's a loss there, right? A loss of a sort of carefree future that we had imagined maybe for a young person that we care about. Um, and all loss um, needs to be mourned. And it's uh, quite appropriate, I think, maybe for us to, uh, to, to, to lay aside some time um, to allow ourselves the space to mourn um, the loss, like I said, of that sort of carefree life or... Uh, or a, 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 a healthy life construed in a particular sort of way, or a um, a sort of life free from from an illness that it seems that we or or ones that we care about are are going to have to live with. Yeah, the the concept of blame, I think, it really is partially dependent on on your religious tradition. I know that some of my uh, friends and colleagues who are of a, a Hindu tradition, for example, will have this concept of, you know, um, the suffering that I have in this life is penance for mm. something I did in a previous life. And so mm. in part, I think they may have this sense of of blame and of guilt, especially if they then pass on those genes to to their children. But let me ask you a different, perhaps even more charged issue. Um, and you, you may already be anticipating where this conversation will go. But the concept of actions that you can take to prevent your offspring, offspring from carrying 
um, genes that will predispose them to cancer or other um, diseases. So how do you square that um, with some religious beliefs against um, against abortion, against, um, you know, uh, embryo selection, um, and further, uh, for some patients, um, who may be very young, diagnosed with breast cancer, they get chemotherapy that will, um, uh, inhibit their ability to have children, um, in the future, so they freeze their their eggs um, and uh, or their their embryos, but then some of those need to go to waste. Um, and so, um, how how do you square that with religious beliefs against uh, those concepts? Well, you you have gotten right into it now, haven't you? Um, <laughs> I should I should I should uh, recommend a list of, of of ethicists for you to talk to. Um, <laughs> but um, joking aside, I, you know I think there are there are obviously really important human questions involved here, and um, and as as you as as you shared, um, even with respect to the sort of question about blame, um, obviously this is going to change very much depending on. Um, our sort of larger, um, our larger frameworks for how we approach life, whether they're religious or secular, philosophical, cultural. I think for all of us, there's some uh, sort of mishmash of all of those things. Um, but whatever that frame is, whatever your vision of a good life is, whatever your account is of what it means to be human and what the worthiness of our shared humanity is is about that's going to profoundly shape the ways that you're going to approach these these questions um for for my part i'm i am i am persuaded by um those who who say who argue that human life is not just valuable it is invaluable it is um uncountable um it is an uncountable good um, and so I have I have sympathy for those who would um, ask questions about what sorts of interventions we we ought to make um, in um, with with our with our technology. Um, but these are very very difficult questions, right? I in my previous answer I drew a line uh, around the moral that was bounded um, by um, what 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 is. Uh, a result of our agency and as our technology increases so does our agency and so more and more decisions our sort of moral sphere grows as our technology our technological um, sphere uh, grows and so uh, I hope I'm not dodging the question simply to say I have I have lots and lots of sympathy for those who think um, in various ways um, about these questions but there are these sort of competing there are these competing interests um, and we're trying to, you know, value um, human life and potential human life and future human lives, um, and those those sorts of calculuses, especially if we 
believe that uh, the value of a human life is uncountable and therefore not really able to be put in a calculus, uh, those sorts of judgments are really, are really, really difficult. And so maybe, if, again, if nothing else, I'm always, a, I'm always an advocate for the question and, and making space to sort of sit with it and, um, and making room for one another to, I mean, as a, as, a, as a Christian, as a theist, I mean, these are questions I want to have the freedom to take to God in prayer, to take to my community in prayer, to invite those who I trust uh, to, to advise me, to avail myself of the best uh, uh, medical and technological expertise possible. Um, but um, I think these, these are decisions that um, each of us uh, needs to make. Um, and I think rightly, we put a lot of, of time and energy and thought and care into these decisions. Yeah. And there's certainly difficult ones, as, as you say, that, you know, each individual has to struggle with um, based on their, their own personal ethics and morals and philosophy and culture and, and everything that goes into it. So no easy answers. Um, I, I can certainly understand that. Um, but the other big question, and I think one that every cancer patient and perhaps every human struggles with it at some point is this whole concept of death and what happens after this and um, what does that look like and what what is the accounting that I have to do for my life and how do I make peace um, in my final days? And I can imagine that um, this too has many, you know, different prongs to it depending on your philosophy, but can you give our audience just a framework to kind of think about these existential questions and, and how to deal with, with those as, as you're facing what may be an imminent diagnosis? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, there's, we have a chapter about death, um, in, in the book in life worth living. And, um, it's a, it's a, it's an unavoidable question and a really, really important and central question. There are those in ancient philosophy who suggested that philosophy was nothing else than a preparation for death and um, how to die well. Um, we are maybe we can speak at least about two very large camps, right? Those for whom um, this life is the end; those for whom this life is a prelude to some other, some other kind of life. Um, and, you know, in the, in the latter camp, we have, um, obviously a number of different re religious, uh, religious traditions. Um, in the book, we talk about, um, uh, sort of Christian visions of, um, of, of life everlasting. But we also, we also talk about, um, Buddhist visions of what happens when we die that don't involve necessarily um, any sort of afterlife there's uh, it kind of depends on the particular Buddhist uh, tradition and vision but Thich Nhat Hanh has suggested that death is something more like a it's like a return of the wave to the ocean um, nothing is lost um, there are also those like our friend and colleague at Yale um, Martin Hagland who as a secular humanist has suggested that the finality and the finitude of life. Uh, he doesn't expect there to be a life after this one, 
And in certain ways, he actually thinks that we ought to hope, he would argue that we have to hope there is no life after this one. Why? Um, because if this life is all we have, it becomes that much more meaningful, that much more valuable for being, um, uh, for, for being uh, so uh, final and finite. Um, obviously, yeah, there's, uh, you can imagine as a Christian theologian, <laughs> I'm inclined to think that uh, to hope for some sort of life everlasting. Um, but at the same time, I don't, I don't think that means that we have to, we should somehow be blind to or unable to wrestle with the real loss that is involved in death, our own, uh, the death of others. Um, so um, I, there is no easy place to land here. Um, but uh, being faced with our own mortality or the mortality of someone whom we love and care for very much can be the sort of crisis that invites us to wrestle deeply with life's big questions and ultimately uh, wrestle deeply with uh, the worthiness of our shared humanity. Dr. Matthew Crosman is a lecturer of divinity and humanities at Yale University. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital.